Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thank you, Brian. And church, I do hope you'll take to heart uh, the opportunity to get involved in a small group here and fill out that form if you're looking. And we can oftentimes put things together. We get out of those forms and find three or four people, five people or more who want to meet on a particular day, and we make it happen. So please fill that out. Now, I was watching a movie recently, and I saw something. It was, uh, I think it was a, a program that came out of Israel, and it was a kind of a counter-terrorist unit type thing. And, and this unit was going in to get the bad guy, the terrorist. And I, was, I, was, I noticed that as they walked into this place of danger, they essentially went in a four-person team, and almost like a circle or a diamond, with the guy in the back facing kind of away, watching their back. You ever seen movies like that where, you know, the, 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 maybe it's an older movie and two guys with swords, they get back to back and they, they fight off the enemy so that they can't have a sneak attack come in from behind and devastate them. Or, or it's a battle, you know, with a, a squad of men with rifles and they, they get in a circle. And, and why, we all know why they do that. They're guarding each other's backs from a sneak attack or for something that could devastate them. And, you know, from that warfare concept, there is an expression that has entered into our everyday vernacular. It's that expression that says, I got your back, right? You ever, you ever heard that before? I got your back. You ever said that to somebody? Don't worry about it. I got your back, okay? Uh, we love that. And, and we've all probably experienced it in different ways and different life circumstances as things have happened where somebody has our back and it makes a huge difference. I, I've done... For some reason this year, I've done several weddings, more than like last year. Of course, last year was COVID. Maybe that's why. <laughs> and uh, I, I've been amused this year. They've all had something in common. Very nervous grooms. <laughs> Guys, do you remember? Uh, those of you who are married, do you remember what it felt like uh, that day? And so I, I've watched in each of these weddings, you know, the guy get very nervous. In one case, I was pretty sure he was going to throw up. He was so nervous. He was feeling sick, you know. And what I noticed in every one of those situations is that his buddies, his groomsmen, they, they had his back. They started joking with him, talking, making fun of him. That's what guys do, right? Mocking him and taking his mind off of things and so that he, he wasn't nervous as much and, and everything went on just fine. Those guys had his back. Ladies, you've, maybe it was a girlfriend who was there for you during the, the joyful news of a pregnancy and then all the, the, the hard parts of uh, morning sickness and then the, maybe the postpartum depression that comes along afterwards, and she had your back. Or it was the friend who encouraged you and you know, brought you meals during times of sickness and disease. Or that coworker who stayed in touch with you 
kept a relationship with you, that that relationship didn't end just because you got laid off or the company let you go. You were more important than your position, right? Those types of things. Many of us have had somebody in our life who hugged us and cried with us, maybe over the breakup of a, of a relationship, even a marriage or death that comes into our lives. Now, that type of love and that type of support, the willingness to watch each other's back, this is throughout the scriptures. It's contained in this concept, this, this word, this wonderful word, we're in this series this summer where we're looking at words within the Bible that have, are rich with meaning. That word community, the concept of biblical community. Biblical community is the body of Christ expressing the life and the message of Christ to one another and to the world in order to build one another up and bring those who don't know Christ to Christ and doing it all for the glory of God. Essentially, biblical community is followers of Jesus being Jesus to one another. That's what biblical community is. And this, this concept is important to us as a church. It's part of the DNA of our church. One of the, one of the greatest rewards I have as the, the pastor of Covenant Church is seeing biblical community played out on a consistent basis within our church family. Because this is what biblical community is getting to, that word family. We all need family. We have a natural family, right? Some of our natural family, I mean, you, you didn't choose those guys, right? <laughs> or those gals. This is the family that you get to choose. And this is the family that will oftentimes have your back when even your physical family won't have your back. And that's not to downplay the importance of physical family. But this concept is important to us as a church. It's so important that two-thirds of our church values, our core values, are built around and express in some way or another biblical community. Four of our six core values. I just wanted to review them real quick, right? Uh, first, first value of our church is living authentically. In a world of guilt and shame, we share together in the grace of God as we repent of our sins and heal from our wounds. Praying dependently, another important core value of our church. In a world of self-reliance, we find power when we look to God rather than to ourselves, connecting intentionally. In a world of isolation and loneliness, we deliberately invite people to experience gospel community with us and caring genu genuinely. In a world of apathy and selfishness and self-centeredness, we care for the deepest needs of people. This is biblical community. It really does define what I think distinguishes, one of the distinguishing characteristics of our church compared to churches that maybe have a different mission, they have a different value, not saying one is better than the other, but we all have our place in the kingdom of God, and this is where God has led us as a church to build our identity around the gospel and gospel-based biblical community. This word is important to our church. It's important to our church not because, you know, it's a, a catch word that has even the world has picked up on. And why has the world picked up on it and our culture picked up on it? Because we have a major pandemic devastating our nation. And it's not the pandemic of COVID-19 as, as bad as that is. We have a, a much more dangerous 
longer lasting pandemic that has been ravaging our nation for years now. It's a pandemic of loneliness, of being alone. And it's behind so much of the substance abuse and the suicides and the broken relationships, the crime and the pain that is going on in our community. It's devastating. It's so bad that even Surgeon General has been speaking about it and other medical people because they recognize that what's happening to people with their physical and emotional uh, lives is linked to loneliness. They have no community. But we come to this word not because of even the pandemic of loneliness in our society. We come to this word because of what the scriptures teach us. And we see community and biblical community and expressions of it throughout the word of God, throughout the scriptures, and we see it this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I hope that you kept your Bibles open, whether it's physical or electronic. We're going to be walking through these verses this morning as we look at this subject, this wonderful word, community. So let's jump right in. And let me start by kind of laying a, a foundation here, just a, an observation that we all need to be uh, cognizant of as we begin to study these verses. In the early church, right, in the, in, in the founding of the church and for the first many centuries of the church, to be a Christian was to live in biblical community with other believers. And there were several factors why this was the norm, okay? The idea of a Lone Ranger Christian did not exist in the early church. People just off doing their own thing? No, no, not at all. Why was that? Well, first and foremost, it's because of the teachings of Jesus. Remember, the early church was discipled by the apostles who had been taught by Jesus. And Jesus said, here's how all men will know that you are my disciples. Here's how everybody will know that you follow me, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And then Jesus modeled that for three years, doing life-on-life biblical community with not only the 12 apostles, but even a larger group of people that he ministered to and walked with. And so this was the example, the teaching that Jesus gave to the apostles, and the apostles in turn gave it to the early church and said, this is what it means to be the people of God, to live in biblical community with one another. And then there were other reasons why this was so important. The average believer in one way or another, especially the Hebrews, the the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And how many of them, and a large number of them, would end up experiencing family and societal rejection simply because they were now trusting in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, They would be shunned from their family. They would be disowned from the father and from the inheritance. And if there was a family business, they would lose their place in that family business because they now trusted in Jesus Christ. They experienced religious opposition. Again, especially the Hebrews that this book is written to, they were kicked out of the synagogue. There was a stigma attached to this. They were viewed as being unclean. They lost their former relationships. Now they're alone from what they had known all their life. And then Jew and Gentile both would experience political persecution as the Roman Empire would enact these things to to persecute those who followed Christ even to the point of death. All of these factors essentially made biblical community absolutely indispensable to the early church Christian. You didn't do the Christian life by yourself. 
figuring it out for yourself. In the early church, it wasn't your attendance at a weekly worship service that identified you as a Christian. It was your attachment to the biblical community of the church. That attachment to biblical community is what distinguished you from somebody else who may just be sitting in that gathered service, checking things out. So with that in mind, right, with that kind of that understanding of the importance, let's jump in to the verses this morning, verses 19 to 25. Let's begin in verse 19 and see that the work of Christ on our behalf is the foundation of biblical community. You know, for us to have a, to live in biblical community with one another, there's a prerequisite. That prerequisite is in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have literally boldness or cheerful courage to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the prerequisite for biblical community is to have a real, holy, spiritual relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and our heavenly Father. To have that, that relationship that has been broken by our sin, reconciled through Christ, so that we are now in the family of God as sons and daughters. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes, and one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of what it took for us to be reconciled to God. And this, these verses speak of it. It took the shed blood of Jesus. That word that we looked at other, earlier in the summer, atonement, right? He purchased our forgiveness. He purchased the forgiveness of our sins with the shed blood of his body and the crucified flesh upon the cross. And because of that sacrifice, God can now declare everyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone, God can declare that person, male, female, boy, girl, doesn't matter the background, that you are now holy and righteous. You're a son and a daughter of God. And God can make this declaration about you because of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, we read, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, because by one sacrifice, he has made, per made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What a place of privilege it is to be a child of God, to have someone, to, to, to be someone whose sins have been forgiven, the breach in the relationship with our heavenly father has now been reconciled. Now we have the cheerful confidence to enter the holy places of God's heaven itself and God's presence through the blood of Jesus. We're highly privileged. In fact, we have more privilege than the high priest who served God underneath the old covenant. He continues and says, we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let me pause there. He's speaking to Hebrews, right? To Jews. At this time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, in all likelihood, the temple where the sacrificial system of the old covenant was done is still standing. It hasn't been destroyed yet. So, so this book was written somewhere before 70 AD, right? And he makes references. And in the book of Hebrews, what you find is that the author is talking to these, these individuals, 
Jewish people who had made a profession of faith expressed allegiance to Jesus. And now for different reasons, maybe it was the ostracism, maybe it was the shunning of their family, the pressure they were getting from loved ones, they were now being tempted to turn back, turn away from Christ and go back to that old covenant system of worship of God. And so the book of Hebrews is warning these individuals, don't do this. You're forsaking the better new covenant for the old covenant. You're forsaking the true mediator and high priest and Messiah, Jesus, for one who pointed to Jesus, Moses, who was not worthy to tie the sandals of Jesus. You're making a mistake. And one of the ways he communicates this is he draws heavily from that old covenant worship uh, and um, rituals and procedures and the law. And he shows them how those things are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we get an example of this uh, tactic right here. Because what he's doing here when he talks about the curtain that's through the flesh and the great high priest, he's pointing back to what they understood about the temple. Every year on the day of atonement, the high priest did a, a special exercise in their, their religious faith. You know, the temple was built. We talked about it last week, you know, uh, with Solomon. He builds it according to the instructions of God. There's this area out the courtyard where they do the sacrifices. There was a chamber where there was incense and the priest and people could go back and forth. But there was one place, a room that no one was allowed to go throughout the year. And it was, it was blockaded with a heavy curtain. Everyone knew, don't go behind that curtain, right? It was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And in the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And, you know, Moses' staff that he did miracles with and a pot of manna. And once a year, the high priest would, on the Day of Atonement, would go through the cleansing rituals. He would prepare himself. He would sacrifice the lamb. He would take the blood of the lamb. And he would go through the curtain with a rope attached to his foot. And the reason why there was a rope attached to his foot and bells along the bottom of his robe that would tinkle and jingle as he, as he walked, as, as the people outside, when they, if they heard the bells stop you know, making their noise for any length of time, they knew that, okay, the guy has gone in there and he's not clean. Now we pull his carcass out of the Holy of Holies because he's gone into the presence of Holy God unclean which was devastating to do. So this was a big deal. And this curtain is here. And what is the author saying here? He's saying the, the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement, that was all pointing to the future when God would provide the perfect lamb whose blood would satisfy all of God's people and their sins. And we know when that was fulfilled because John the Baptist, as he's standing there preaching to the children of Israel centuries later, when he sees Jesus walking down the road, turns and he points to him and he says to the people, behold, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is Jesus. He's that lamb. He's that great high priest who has opened up the throne room of God so that everyone who trusts in him can have a 24-7, 365 day, a year, life-giving, vital relationship with God. And this was not possible. In this way, under the old covenant, only Jesus could do this with the new covenant. 
And so what's the response to that kind of grace that God has given to his people? When you look at verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Literally, he says, let us come with the intent to worship. Let us come with the intent to worship with a true heart. In other words, with a genuine heart, with a real heart, with a heart that has been brought to life in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he saying? He's saying every one of us who have experienced the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are trusting in him, the right response to this grace is to worship God, to revel in this access that we have to God now. We have a deeper access, a continual access, even more than the high priest of the old covenant had. Let's enjoy that. Let's enjoy that. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that the author doesn't stop with this description of the gospel and its effect upon us. Yeah, the gospel does transform us spiritually. It changes our relationship with our heavenly father. But the gospel also drastically transforms our everyday life. It changes how we live. And so the apostle, really from this point on to the end of the book, begins to remind us that the transforming power of the gospel is very practical. It's very others-oriented. It's very much a real faith, and the consequences of it can be tangibly experienced in our everyday lives as we form life-on-life attachments and relationships with other Christians. So when we turn to verse 23, we come to a major gospel application of this passage and of the passages to come in the book of Hebrews. That every one of us, every one of us who are in Christ, we need biblical community in order for the grand truth of the gospel to be appropriated and applied into our everyday lives. He writes in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This author apparently knew something about boats and seamanship because God loves fishermen. Just wanted to let you know that. (laughs) He uses a term here that's a nautical term. It's a term that was used about steering a ship. And essentially, what he's, you know, he's saying, don't steer the ship in such a way that it veers off to the left or to the right. Stay on course. For you Star Wars fans, it was when Luke Skywalker was in the Death Star and a little voice in his ear is going, stay on target, stay on target, right? That's what's going on here. He's saying, don't swerve to the left or to the right in your walk with God and in your Christian experience and in your allegiance to the gospel. Don't drift left or right. Go straight at it. Stay on that straight course. Why does he give that warning? Why do you think he gives that warning? Because he knows that the natural tendency and temptation of every follower of Christ is to drift, to turn aside from the grandeur and the power of the gospel. As as great and as powerful as the truth of the gospel is, as liberating as it is, Every one of us 
is tempted, and we're tempted on a regular basis to turn from it in such a way that our lives get off course, and we go to the right, or we go to the left. We're tempted to do that in in some specific ways, at least three ways that you see on a regular basis. First, we add self-righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. In other words, we just have this tendency, even as followers of Christ, to, to revert back to a performance mentality. I've talked a lot about that this summer, but, but this is self-righteousness. This is in some way thinking that we can earn the favor, the grace, the blessing of God. If you think this morning that by coming to church and sitting here and participating, that this earns you something from God, you're getting off course. Your, your life is veering off the course that the, the gospel sets for us. We're always tempted to do this. And as a result, our faith, when we live this way, our faith becomes a drudgery. It becomes obligation and duty rather than liberation and freedom. Or we just become insufferably arrogant, pharisaical legalist. That's what happens when we add self-righteousness to the righteousness of Christ that's found in the gospel. Or another thing that often happens and a way that we are tempted is that we turn from the, the, the wisdom of the gospel and God's word and we embrace the wisdom of our culture and the world around us and we allow that to have at least as much influence, if not more influence, as the scriptures do on how we, how we raise our children, how we live towards our spouses and towards our family members, how we interact with our friends and coworkers, how we steward God's abilities and the treasure and the talents that God has given us, we begin to rely more upon what the worldly wisdom has to say about a subject rather than what God's word does. We're getting off course. We're veering to the right or to the left, okay? And then one that is a particular issue for American Christianity is we so often approach what it means to be a Christian with a lone ranger or a consumeristic attitude, right? All of us. We we, we arrange for ourselves, you know, a faith that is very convenient to us, that, that is attractive to us, rather than what the scriptures say. We're tempted this way, church. And this is why the, why the author gives this warning to stay true to the gospel. Hold fast the confession of your faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And he gives us that warning because we're all susceptible to it, me included. I, every one of these three, every one of those three ways, I'm, I'm guilty of it at any given time. This is a battle for all of us. So, you know, we have to see that see this warning for what it is. It's an important warning. And so it's why, you know, when you think back, you step back, you look at the mission of our church, and we say the mission of our church is to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. In that mission statement, we are including ourselves, every one of us. It starts with us. We need gospel restoration. We need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge and the truth of the gospel. It starts with us. And how does that happen? How does the gospel transform us? Carrying on, verse 24. Let us consider. Neat word, consider. It means to meditate, to ponder, to immerse oneself in study. 
to really check something out, right? Let us consider, let us immerse ourselves and study specifically how to stir up one another to love and good works. So he says, hey, how does this transformation happen? It happens as Christians begin to study one another and, and figure out how do I, and, and a neat word here for stir up, it's the word for paroxysm. It's the word for convulsion. Some of you are going to love this word because you're really good at it. It means to irritate. To irritate. Yeah, I'm looking at you. No, no, I'm kidding. Right? Right? So how do you irritate? How do you provoke somebody? How do you stimulate somebody? But now, now the idea here isn't that we are stimulating and irritating someone in a, in a jerk fashion because we're picking at them and we're doing things. No, in other words, we are figuring out what makes this person tick? How, what's going on in this person's life? Where are they struggling? How do I help encourage them to grow in the love and the good works of the gospel? That's what he's getting at here. Not neglecting to meet together as it is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How does the gospel transform us? When together we are doing life together, we are living with one another, we are hanging out with one another, we're figuring each other out, we know each other, what triggers us and what motivates each other, and we begin to interact with one another at that deeper level of friendship and relationship and Christian community so that when we struggle spiritually, there is somebody in our life who knows us well enough to come alongside, put their arm around us and say, hey, I see you're struggling. Let's talk about this. What's, what's important in this passage is not only what it looks like in biblical community, this, this spurring and encouraging, and it's these words together and one another. These words are, are biblical code words. When you see the words together or one another, these are code words in the scriptures for biblical community. These are code words for this wonderful word that we're living with this morning and studying, community, right? So to live out the gospel, let's recognize that we must be together with other Christians in biblical community. We do this in gathered form and we do this in scattered form. We do it together in a larger group and we do it scattered in smaller groups. We need both. We need the gathered experience that we have here this morning. Right? We need what happens in our hearts as the Holy Spirit works in us, as we join our voices in song, praising God together, we need what happens when we submit ourselves to psalms like we did this morning and we lift our voices up together in unison in prayer and praying back the truth of God to Him. We need what happens here when we are together. It's vitally important. What happens on Sunday is crucial. And, and by the way, this is influencing how we're designing the new facility. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna see the designs at the end of the month. Uh, we should have that video out to you. And one of the things you're gonna see that we're very excited about, but it comes back to this concept right here, is you're gonna see a lobby or a foyer, or for those of you who were raised Presbyterian, a narthex, right? Um, you're gonna see 
a lobby and foyer that's somewhere between like three and 4,000 square foot. The size almost of like our, our fellowship hall over here. Why? Because the value of us on Sunday morning being able to gather together and talk and laugh and catch up and pray. How many times in a, on a Sunday do we see people, maybe somebody has had a hard week and they're crying on the shoulder of someone else. And wouldn't it be nice to do that in air conditioning instead of a hundred degree courtyard? Yes, it would be nice. And so we see what's been taking place in the courtyard and we love it. We love it. And we want to encourage more of it. And so we have in this new facility designed a foyer. It will be comfortable and couch and you can have your coffee or for those of you who are truly spiritual, your Diet Coke and you can sit together, right? <laughs> and you can be in biblical community on Sunday morning. Something happens gathered together that every one of us is need, needs, but we also need that scattered form of biblical community because things happen in that environment more naturally than what can take place in the gathered environment. If all we have is the gathered environment, I guarantee you our knowledge and our insight into one another's lives will never get deep enough for us to be able to spur one another on to love and good works. If all we ever have is the gathered, we will stay at a certain level. Most of us will stay very much at the surface level and we will talk about how bad the Jaguars are again this year rather than getting into the real pain that's in our lives, okay? That's what happens. But in a small group environment, that isn't what happens. In a small group environment, that's where we are known and we can be known. So at Covenant, Really, our deepest, deepest needs are addressed through biblical community with believers in smaller, more trusted, intimate environments. This is where our uh, friendships are made. This is where our emotional needs are met. This is where our spiritual struggles can be expressed. This is where the trials and tribulations that we're facing can be handled. When we talk about caring genuinely, it's through these relationships that we form in biblical community that when we go through life's trials, people have our back. If all we have is a gathered group on Sunday morning, most of us will never get to know each other well enough to feel a sense of love and commitment to have their back through thick and thin. That's why we need biblical community. We also need biblical community for another reason. And it's hard to hear, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you claim the label of Christian to be a follower of Christ, I guarantee you that unless you meet regularly together with other believers in biblical community, your Christian life and your Christian experience is going to end up being very anemic and incomplete and much more difficult than what it has to be. How many times through the years have I had conversations with people and they would sit in my office maybe with tears coming down their face and they would say, I don't understand how I got here. And maybe they had, had lived their life in a way and participated in things that are clearly 
contrary to God's word. And as they grieve over this, they look at me with almost astonishment. How did I get here? Right? And, and as I talk to them, there's inevitably this common theme to their lives. They were disconnected from God's people. They, they, at best, they might have just walked in and out of a church on Sunday morning, but most of the time, not even that. They didn't have the gathered or the scattered. And so what happens over time, church, Christian? Here's what happens to you. Over time, the message of our culture the message of this world becomes louder and more convincing to you than the message of God's word and the gospel. And you begin to take your cues for how to live your life and how to raise your children and how to conduct yourself as an individual more from the culture around us than you do from the inspired word of God. And therefore you lose that joy of your salvation and the peace that passes all understanding that comes with Jesus Christ and a vibrant relationship with him. That vibrant relationship has to be experienced with biblical community. And when you cut yourself off from that, you open yourself up every single time to our great enemy. And over time, you become more and more influenced by the world around us, and inevitably, you start looking, thinking, smelling, and acting like the lost, unbelieving world around us. So I give you this warning this morning. As your pastor who loves you, who craves for you the blessings of that come to the children of God who are in close community with him because they are in close community with other Christians. Don't cut yourself off from biblical community. Don't. It will devastate you. It will devastate you. So, let me encourage you. You got that form, right? If you aren't connected into a biblical community and you don't already know where you're going this next ministry year, Please plan to fill out that form. Come and talk to us after the service at the Connect table this week, next week. Let us know of your interest and we will help you in this area. If you've been doing life alone, feeling kind of self-sufficient, make today the day you repent of that arrogance. Be humble before God and admit your need. As you commit to yourself to living in biblical community with one another, you'll begin to get a taste of what is in store for us for all of eternity. Something that the Lord's Supper reminds us of, right? The Lord's Supper reminds us that for all of eternity, we are going to be in the closest community possible with our Lord Jesus Christ, with our Heavenly Father, and with one another. There's a reason why the Lord's Supper is a meal. How much real community happens around food, right? It does, doesn't it? You know, that's why we, I encourage, when someone asks me, how do you do small, you know what I like to do with small group? I like, I, an hour and a half doesn't cut it for me. I like like two hours, two and a half. We have a, an hour just to eat together and hang out and talk and fellowship with one another. And the kids run around and they have fun. And, and then we turn to the word, there's something that happens around the table with community. And so when we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we're pointing to the fact that one day 
We're going to enjoy this kind of oneness with our Heavenly Father, with our Lord Jesus Christ, and all the saints that have come before us and will come after us from around the world who've ever believed and trusted. We're going to enjoy community with them. And it's pictured in the Bible even as a meal. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where we sit down with our Savior and we enjoy this feast in eternal community with one another. So the Lord's Supper this morning has extreme significance for what's waiting for us. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what does that mean? That means this morning that all of us Everyone here is welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us, whether you're a member of our church or not, as long as you can do it in a worthy manner. And a worthy manner means that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're committed to Christ, right? And you're committed to not coddling sin in your life. So, for example, having a grudge against another Christian, brother and sister, and refusing to forgive and deal with that situation, the scriptures say, settle that sin first before taking the Lord's Supper for to do so as to do in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean that we come to the table not as sinners. And that's why he says to examine himself. We're all sinners. And we all sin. And many of us, we sinned this morning. And some of you are thinking about my sermon this morning and what you were thinking probably wasn't very nice. I don't know. We're all sinners. So we can come to the table as sinners, but we have to come to the table as people who are admitting that we're sinners and that we're confessing that sin in prayer. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just one moment. And let's take a moment to pray and ask God to cleanse our hearts. If the Holy Spirit brings specific sins to mind, confess them so that we can take the meal clean in spirit and truth. Lord Jesus, you tell us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, that you take all of our sin and you separate it as far as the east is from the west. You bury it under the blood of Christ. You see it and remember it no more. So as your children, as people who have trusted in our Savior, Jesus, we come to you and we ask you to cleanse us this morning. Lord, the number of times that we, we blew it this week, just the number of times that we know about it are grieving to our hearts, much less the times that we sin and we don't even know about it. 
But even as we grieve over that sin, we rejoice even greater over the grace that comes from you because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And so this morning we come with uh, uplifted hearts, encouraged hearts, knowing that you remember our sin no more, but instead you see us as loved sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And for this, we praise your great name. Amen. So let me give you some instructions. Uh, take off the, the little plastic piece that's the bread first. Don't do the, uh, the juice first, so that's a problem. Take out the little wafer of bread and then turn it. And if you would, then peel off the seal of the vine. Jesus says this is his body, which is broken for all of us on the cross. And this is his blood, which he shed. For without the shedding of blood, the scriptures tell us, there is no forgiveness of sins. Take and eat in memory of him. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night that he was betrayed, that when they finished, the disciples stood together and they sang. So let's stand and we'll close out our service this morning in song.